This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment-related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Thank you. Today, our show will be about a little-known aspect of ADHD, which has great impact on people with ADHD who often don't understand their reaction in certain situations. My guest today is Dr. Bill Dodson of the Dr. Dodson ADD Center in Denver. Dr. Dodson has 22 years of practice experience uh, in helping people with adult ADHD and has uh, come up with this um, aspect of ADHD, which I really haven't seen anything else um, about it in ADHD information. So, Bill, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thanks a lot. And uh, let's just dive right in. What you've uh, called this is a rejection sensitivity. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about um, what it is? Well, I'd love to say that I discovered it, but I didn't. Um, actually, uh, Paul Winter wrote about it in the very early days of ADHD. Uh, back then, they were looking solely at behaviors, things that researchers could actually see and count and put in their research, and they intentionally uh, neglected and ignored the emotional aspects of ADHD. Uh, Winder wrote about it uh, that what he found was that people with ADHD led very intense, passionate lives, uh, but that was not the problem. He said that just about everybody that he evaluated, and especially so with adults, were exquisitely sensitive to the mere perception that someone had uh, rejected them, criticized them, teased them, uh, was disappointed in them, and that they, people with ADHD would have these catastrophic, overwhelming emotional responses to it. Uh, when they were asking people to describe what the emotional experience was, even though it was incredibly intense, people could only describe the intensity of it. It was awful, it was terrible, it was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, they couldn't describe the quality of the pain, um, which to me means it's something that's very primitive, very fundamental uh, about human existence. It's, it's from a time before there are words. Uh, uh -huh. And so uh, what happened was over and over again, the research subjects would finally just tell the researchers, you know, back off, I can't tell you what it feels like, but I want you to know I can hardly stand it. And at being Harvard, they had to show off and put it into Greek um, dysphoria. Uh, dysphoria is literally Greek for unbearable. And so the rejection-sensitive dysphoria um, uh, quickly, though, became uh, attached to not ADHD, but to what most psychiatrists are trained to call atypical or non-typical depression. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, rejection sensitive dysphoria has been the hallmark symptom of atypical depression. The reason it wasn't a typical depression was that it wasn't a mood disorder at all. It had none of the features of a mood disorder. Um, it was just about every time ADHD. And so um, uh, the, it got forgotten because, again, it, you, you couldn't publish it. And back then it was public, just as it is now, it's publisher parish. Right. Uh, this feature, this rejection sensitivity, was one, it wasn't always there. It had to be triggered by something. Uh, and usually the, the person could tell you exactly what triggered it. Uh, it might have been an event, a misperception, imagination, whatever, but they could tell you what triggered it. It was an instantaneous change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a this wordless, severe, catastrophic pain um, in response to the perception, didn't have to be real, that someone had withdrawn their love, approval, and respect. Right. And I, because I this made them so vulnerable, and because most people were very ashamed of it, the other sort of uh, kiss of death that made it unresearchable is that people hid it. They didn't sure. want anybody to know, um, as they say, that they were head cases. Um, and finally, it couldn't be measured. It couldn't be described. Um, there was no scale for how bad this awful emotional experience was. And so rejection-sensitive dysphoria got ignored and then finally forgotten until very recently when for a number of reasons people have come back and started reading some of um, Paul Winder's original work. Mm-hmm. and. And when they saw it, said, "Wow, this is important." Um, I imagine people with ADHD may not even realize that it's happening. I mean, they may have um, sudden anger flares, but not be sure why, and all kinds of other reasons attributed. So, does this show up differently in different people? Yes, um, and we'll sort of hit it in sort of large categories. If somebody internalizes this emotional reaction, it looks like they are instantaneously fully in a major depression with suicidal ideation. Wow. Um, uh, And uh, indeed, um, uh, for all the world, uh, it looks like uh, borderline personality disorder because it has that interpersonal trigger. Um, The person felt... Uh, rejected by someone else and just all of a sudden they're suicidally depressed. If it's externalized, it comes as a rage at the person or situation that wounded them so severely. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a study, uh, unfortunately, that never got published, um, but from Oklahoma, where they looked at people who were court-mandated for anger management therapy, either because of a domestic violence conviction or a road rage conviction. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that half of those people had previously undiagnosed ADHD. Wow. Um, And that this was the... You know, that something would trigger this rage reaction, and they would just be completely out of control uh, and do things that would get them in jail. Yeah. So it, it's it's 
it's there all the time, but it's hidden, and so people tend to see what they're trained to see. Sure. Uh, cops are trained to see, you know, illegal behavior. Most psychiatrists are trained to see mood disorders, um, but they aren't trained to see ADHD, even when it's there. Right. So, is do most people or all people with ADHD, first of all, have the potential for this, and second of all, do all of them show it at some point? Uh, like everything else in, in life, there are gradations. Uh, mm -hmm. Thus far, 99 and 9 tenths percent of my adult patients, I have it on a checklist, will check that as being positive. For some people, they have found ways to let things roll off their backs. But for a third of my adult patients, they list this rejection sensitivity as the most disruptive aspect of their ADHD. They have found ways around their academic and work performance because they're so bright, so clever. Um, but they have not found a way to deal with this sudden uh, completely without warning, emotional storm that hits them. Um, people try to deal with it uh, in a couple of ways. One of the most common is they become a people pleaser. Uh, they constantly scan everybody they meet, trying to figure out what that person would approve of and like, and right. that's what they give them. They, they present a false face to the world so that many of them feel that they are frauds, uh, that if people really knew me, um, they would reject me type of thing. Um, they do it to the extent where they no longer remember what they wanted from their own lives. They're so busy mm -hmm. making sure that everybody else is happy. Um, some people deal with it by stop trying. Uh, if they're presented with some new task, uh, if there's the chance in the world that they might fail in front of everybody, they don't even start. It's entirely too risky. They just they won't even start. So this is the you know your average slacker uh, mm -hmm. with ADHD who basically just sort of wiles away life and yeah, kind of never, unmotivated. Never, and I certainly yeah, see or, a lot of teenagers yeah. in that that situation. Yeah, and it's not so much that they're unmotivated, it's that trying something is so very risky. Oh, sure. They, I, they get labeled unmotivated, but, but I can see how this would, would uh, drive that. Right. And you know, the, the research was now probably 20 years old from Jelinek at Harvard that by the time a kid with ADHD reaches his 12th birthday, he's heard 20,000 additional negative messages or, or corrections. Oh, boy. So, I mean, it's, it's one of God's jokes and bad taste is that they... It makes people exquisitely sensitive to criticism mm -hmm. and then gives them ADHD, so that's their steady diet. Yeah, yeah. Now, what other conditions could this be confused with? You mentioned a couple as far as the borderline personality disorder, yeah. for one, or the, major depression. Uh, yeah, depression. The one that's hardest to tease apart is social anxiety disorder or social phobia. Mm-hmm. Uh, in social phobia, uh, a person has an intense anticipatory fear that they're either going to say or do something out in public that is going to humiliate or embarrass them, 
or even if they're absolutely perfect, um, people are still scrutinizing them harshly and just waiting for them to mess up so they can jump them. Um, and these, and of course, some people can win the negative genetic lottery and end up with both conditions. Right. But um, the uh, the way I try to uh, tease those apart is that social anxiety disorder is before the event. Um, they're worried mm -hmm. that they're going to. Um, be humiliated. It's, it's a narcissistic injury. People with ADHD, um, it, it can happen and just hit them out of nowhere, walking down the hall and somebody didn't say hello. And yeah. Boom, off they go. Oh, this person must hate me. You know, I must have done something to cause them to shun me. And now all their friends are going to shun me and just on and on and on. Right, right. Um, so it's. I wish it were always that clear. Yeah, um, but it, it's one the social phobia occurs before the event and rejection sensitivity after the event. Mm -hmm. Now, for all the I, world, they look the same. I certainly see quite a number of, of people, children, and, and a lot of adults who uh, strive to be perfect. If if yeah. everything's perfect, then. I'm not going to get that. Kids doing homework, they'll spend hours trying to get it exactly right. Um, and uh, adults, the same thing, trying to word an email. And they may spend two hours on a two-paragraph email because they're trying to get everything exactly um, perfect oh, and above, precise. Above reproach is the... Um, they, they, they want it to be above criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that's the one silver lining to an otherwise very dark cloud is that rejection sensitivity can propel people to great achievement. Mm -hmm. um, that you know they're they're trying to be the very best to do things so well nobody could pick at them. Um, the trouble is that they lead a life motivated by fear and emotional yes. pain. So all most people see on the outside is their attainment and not what drives it. Right. And I certainly see a lot of, it seems to be teen girls in high school, they'll stay up till 1 and 2 o'clock at night to finish their homework. Somehow, broad generalization, most of the guys give up and just don't finish it. Um, so the girls are the ones that lose out because now they're getting five hours of sleep and trying to, to function, which makes it even more difficult. Yeah, and, and that's also perpetuated by what Paul Winder again uh, referred to as people with ADHD having relentless determination. Mm -hmm. And once they finally do get engaged with something, uh, they just keep pursuing it and coming after it with one uh, solution after another until they overcome and master whatever it is they're working on. Um, so it, that also can be a manifestation of ADHD. What what we hear so much about is people who can't get started or wander away in the middle. Right. There are just as many people up at two in the morning, um, making sure that everything gets done. Right. And those those people, you know, nobody's going to tell them they're doing the wrong thing. So I imagine uh, people with ADHD are pretty relieved to know. At least th this is 
part of their ADHD. They aren't crazy. They don't have other conditions. And it's not a personal flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, shame is a huge part of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, because um, they, they feel as if they're constantly covering up things that they don't want people to see. Um, so it's a, uh, these are people who are just filled with shame. Um, and so it's, um, they're, I'm trying to think how to put this, um, they're, they're constantly working. Um, and it, it's a, it's a really unfortunate life because they always feel less than. They always feel that anybody can judge them. Uh, anybody can uh, ruin their day because, it, as one of my patients says, one no will erase a thousand yeses. Yes. Uh, and when it, when rejection sensitive dysphoria hits somebody, it just totally takes over. The person ruminates over, you know, uh, what did I do wrong? What? How could I have done this better? Why do people hate me? And of course, they don't. It, it's this overreaction, um, overthinking everything. Right, right. So how would you go about explaining not just to the person who has it, but uh, helping, for instance, a spouse understand it or a parent understand it? Um, What I try to point out is that this is something that is genetic, neurologic, hardwired, your child or your husband didn't plan to be this way, while um, certainly you know, early life trauma and, and things like that, you know, bad, unsupportive family can make anything worse. It did not cause rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Uh, it is what it is. It's hardwired. To my mind, 100% of people ADHD, who have an ADHD nervous system have it to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the other nice thing is that there are a couple of medications that can almost completely relieve it. And when you look back over you know, the research on rejection-sensitive dysphoria and uh, uh, non-typical or atypical depressions, um, psychotherapies had no effect whatsoever. Um, so this is something that's biologic, neurologic, genetic. Um, and so it's just how the person's wired. Uh, knowing that is a tremendous relief to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, that one, they're not alone. You, uh, one of those common things is, you know, you mean other people are like this? Again, they've right. hidden it away, they, and they, they feel this is a grievous personal flaw that only they have. Uh, and it explains to them why life has been so hard. Right. Um, um, so the, 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 the first thing that happens is this tremendous relief. This has a name. It has a history. Other people deal with it. People are tremendously relieved. So does, um, does that relief and explanation of their behaviors, is that often enough for people to figure out how to deal with it, or do they need something else to help with it? Well, again, when they're able to say, okay, I can recognize what this is, um, that shortens these periods of obsessive rumination. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
they, they're able to pull themselves out after 15 minutes rather than two or three days. Um, but it still happens. It still can just ruin somebody's day. You know, if somebody scowls at them, you know, they can launch off into these obsessive worries. Uh, what really helps are medications. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the easiest ones to use are uh, lopicine or clonidine, which are FDA approved for the hyperactive component of ADHD. So they're FDA, FDA approved for ADHD. Um, the um, brand names are uh, Intuniv, Capbay, Cataprest, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the downside is that only about a third of people will get the benefit uh, from an alpha agonist. That's the class they're in. Um, but when it does, it's almost perfect. It's almost complete. Uh, wow. What they describe is that it's like putting on emotional armor that they still mm -hmm. see the same things happening out there that last week would have wounded them terribly, and now it sort of bounces off without hurting them, and they sort of see it pass them by, and they talk about how tremendously freeing it is that you don't have to be constantly vigilant uh, unless you be emotionally devastated. Right. I've, so, I had uh, one interesting uh, patient, actually a few now, adults that would have, I think, probably similar reactivity as they came off um, some of the ADD medicines. And one person said, you know, Adderall works great for focus, but I don't want to take it because I don't even want to be around me. And I said, you know, let's try some Intuniv. He came back and said, that's it. He was, I think, taking one or two milligrams, smoothed things out. He didn't have that rebound. I'll have to ask him next time if it helps with his other kind of uh, the rejection sensitivity. Yeah. And again, as with everything in psychiatry and neurology, um, you have to fine-tune the dose to the unique individual. Uh, there's no one, one medication at one dose for everybody. Um, you have to fine-tune it. So I've got people who are on half a milligram of uh, guampacine, and I've got people who, for all the world, look exactly the same, but they require seven or eight milligrams, which is about wow, double what, what the FDA approves. Um, there's a, in fact, there's a new paper out of the uh, group at Harvard uh, looking at clonidine and guampacine, and that when they went beyond the FDA-approved uh, maximum, they got another 30% of people who responded and got a good response that, that just at the um, uh, FDA maximums were too low. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, uh, again, you have to fine-tune it to the response and tolerability of the individual. So, um, what other, is there another medication or set of medications that might be helpful? No. Well, again, going back to Paul Winder again, um, 50 years ago, um, in the very first book, um, that he published where he just sort of tosses out as an afterthought that ADHD is not just a condition of hyperactive little boys, that it persists into adulthood um, pretty much all the time. Uh, he talks about the fact that um, while 
the stimulants, methylphenidate and amphetamine, were probably the best medications for children. The medications he went to for adults were monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and in particular a drug called Parnate is the brand name, Tranalcipramine is the uh, generic name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in the one study that he did where he compared um, uh, monamine oxidation inhibitors head-to-head with methylphenidate, he found that not only um, did it uh, was it equally effective as methylphenidate, but it also treated the rejection sensitivity beautifully at about an 85% response rate. Great. Um, so... Um, the, with monamine oxidase inhibitors, they're not stimulants. They're not controlled substances. You can phone in a year's worth if you want. Uh, they're true once-a-day medications, um, and they, it's, you take one dose, and it's good for actually 48 hours. Um, they're excellent uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. Uh, anytime you have that big a silver lining, you have a dark cloud. Right. I know most doctors are kind of, they hear that and say, oh, boy, i got to stay away from that one. Right. And most doctors have never used a monamine oxidase inhibitor in their lives for exactly that reason. Um, back when they were first introduced in the early 1960s, they just transformed um, psychiatry. They, these were medications that worked great. We'd, we'd never had any medications at all before. And then about two or three years in, especially in Europe, people started dropping dead. And death is a real bad first um, side effect. Right. And it took five or six years for them to figure out what was going on. And that is that um, cheese and things which are aged and fermented rather than cooked have an amino acid called tyramine that shoots up blood pressure. And usually tyramine is destroyed by this enzyme, and when we're inhibiting it, it gets in and shoots people's blood pressure up. Uh-huh. Uh, but by that time, people, doctors especially, had moved on to other classes of, of antidepressants and um, anti-anxiety medications, and so the monamine oxidase inhibitors largely went into disuse. Um, and it's too bad because they, they work very well. So you, you have drugs like Parnate that work well but are not FDA approved uh, for ADHD. They're mm-hmm. uh, FDA approved for depression and for just about all of the anxiety disorders. So in terms of the, the tyramine, it sounds like there are a number of foods that contain it. Are there other medications that shouldn't be mixed with the Parnate? Uh, yes. Uh, if you look on the back about a half of over-the-counter medications, it'll have down there on the fine print, do not take this medication if you've taken a monamine oxidase inhibitor in the last two weeks. So it's practically any um, cold sinus or hay fever medication that contains a decongestant. Uh, it's uh, practically any cough, over-the-counter cough syrup that contains dextromethorphan. It's all of the antidepressants. Mm-hmm. All of the ADHD stimulants, um, uh, a couple of um, uh, things used for anesthesia. Um, so it, there's a, a list. It's, it's fairly short, but and it's not things that you will would ordinarily come in 
come in contact with, but you still need to know what they are and have a list with you about, you know, don't give this medication if type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reaction with the medications um, is called a serotonin syndrome, uh, where the body just gets flooded with um, serotonin, and people get stiff as a board, their body temperature jumps up, um, and they can't have seizures uh, in, you know, worst of all possible cases. Is there a kind of a, a warning level or mild sign of this that would um, warn someone, boy, I shouldn't take any more of this? Or is it all or nothing? Um, yeah, usually it's uh, with the uh, aged foods and with the stimulants and de decongestants and stuff like that. Um, it's the blood pressure going up. And it's basically a person says, I've got the worst headache I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if that happens, and it's very, very rare, but if it happens, that's a reason to go to an emergency room. Sure. Um, um, if you look on the Internet and you bring up some of the old diets and medication exclusion lists and stuff like that, um, they would scare anybody to death. Um, sure. Because it's... Um, they imply that if you even so much as sniff a piece of cheese, you're going to keel over dead. And point of fact, uh, most people can have 50 milligrams of tyramine at one meal and still be quite safe. Uh, that's like six ounces of cheddar cheese. So mm -hmm. it's, it's actually a very easy, forgiving diet. Uh, it's just all things in moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, uh, most of the things you have to avoid uh, that will cause the serotonin syndrome um, are other antidepressants, um, which most people have tried and failed to begin with. Right. Well, we need to wrap it up this at this point. Bill, I thank you very much for being on the show and helping to uh, bring to awareness this, I think, pretty unrecognized aspect of ADHD, which certainly has a major impact on people's lives. Um, so thanks again. And this is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host of ADHD Focus, signing off. And be sure to listen on our next show when we'll have another guest talking about some of the emotional aspects of ADHD. Until then, be well.